We're in the second part of a three-part series that I'm entitling Jesus for Thinking People. Jesus for Thinking People. And we're asking just the basic question. We're using the first four verses of the book of Luke as sort of a springboard for this question. Why think this stuff is true? Why think this stuff is true? Can a reasonably intelligent, reasonably critically thinking person come to the conclusion that in fact Luke and the other gospel authors are telling us the truth about who Jesus is and that he is in fact the Son of God and died for our sins and rose from the dead? And the answer that I'm banking my life on is that yes, they can. Let's read the first four verses here. I'm reading out of the TNIV version, which is the version I'll be using throughout this series. Luke says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning or from the very start, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That phrase, most excellent Theophilus, denotes that, that he was a person of some standing. Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Why think that that is true? I want to pray, and I'd like to get some people around the auditorium to keep me covered in prayer as I'm preaching. Can I get some people? Thank you. I appreciate that very much. <clears throat> Lord, I, I'm just so thankful that you don't ask us to take a leap in the dark and shoot out our brains when it comes to believing in you. Rather, Lord, your word says, Come, let us reason. You gave us our minds for a reason, and it's to discern truth. And what we're praying here this morning, God, is that this word would have your, that, 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 unique, that unique anointing that comes from you. And that, Lord, it would be persuasive and compelling to anybody in this auditorium who right now isn't committed to you, isn't surrendered to you, isn't in a saving relationship with you. We pray for them, Lord. Open their hearts and open their minds. And we pray, Lord God, that this word would also be used to deepen the conviction of those who are already committed to you, that they'd be fully convinced of the, the certainty of this, the truth of this, as Luke uh, said in his word. And Lord, we pray that you would use this to equip us to be ministers and servants of, the, of our culture where people often have questions that deserve answers. So use this, Lord God, to accomplish your will. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Why well, think that this is uh, true? God doesn't ask us to take a blind leap of faith in the dark and uh, just base what we believe on the first thing that we were ever told or on chance or anything like that. He expects us to use our minds, and that's what we're doing here in this series. Let's think about this stuff. What we showed last week is this. Your alternatives are basically this. You either believe that Luke and the other gospel authors are telling the truth, or you don't. It comes down to that. Those two alternatives exhaust the options. It's either true or it's false. If it's true, then it only makes sense for you to totally surrender your life to Christ. Because if it's true, this is the single most important fact in all of history and in all of eternity. Surrender your life completely to Jesus Christ if you think it's true. If you don't think it's true, you clearly think it's false. And if you think it's false, I'll help you out here. You've got two options, basically. If you think it's false... Either it's false intentionally or unintentionally. That is to say, either you think the gospel authors and the early Christians made up something, they were lying, they conspired together to propagate a story they knew wasn't true. In that case, you believe what I'm calling the conspiracy theory. Or if you think it's false, you can believe it's unintentionally false. 
And that is to say, you think that Luke and the other gospel authors really believed what they were saying. That's why they were willing to die for it. But they were wrong. Somehow the story of Jesus grew and evolved and legends sprung up around him that they sincerely believed, but it was not historical. And that's why we're calling this the legendary theory, the legendary hypothesis. Now, last week I uh, spent the, the message on the conspiracy theory. And what we saw last week, still by way of review here, was this. The problems with the conspiracy theory is, first of all, there's no evidence for this. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the early Christians were involved in a conspiracy. Nor is there any motive for them to be involved in a conspiracy. They had nothing to gain and everything to lose. Nor, are, nor do we find any deserters on the early Christian movement, which suggests it wasn't a conspiracy. These are people who were impaled on post and tarred and set on fire and beheaded and fed to lions. They were tortured in vicious ways, so vicious that even the, the secular historian Tacitus uh, feels sorry for them in, in his writings. Um, but uh, no one recanted their testimony that Jesus did what they said he did and made the claims they said that he made and rose from the dead like they say he rose from the dead. No one ever recants. The fourth thing is that a lot of their gospel, a lot of the message they preach, is countercultural in some fundamental ways. And if you're going to make up a story for, eight, for, for whatever reason, we never did figure that out, but if you're going to make up a story and try to sell it to the culture, you don't make up a story that runs counter to the culture in fundamental ways. The final thing is that if they were making up this message, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to falsify and there were a lot of people around who wanted to falsify it, who wanted to disprove it. They saw the early Christians as sort of a pernicious cult that needed to be stamped out. The message that these early Christians preach, names, names. They, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was tried under Caiaphas, the high priest. People know these names. Uh, you, you have ways of finding out and checking on the story when you name names like this. And... If they were making this story up, it would, be, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to prove it wrong. You just have to get a Joseph of Arimathea or a Caiaphas, the high priest, or a Pilate to say, this never happened. These people are making this story up. But we never find that happening. That objection is never raised against the early Christians, which tells us this wasn't a conspiracy. So we're down to one alternative. If it wasn't a conspiracy and you're not going to accept that it's true, you have to believe that it's a legend. It's a legend of some sort. Whoever, Jesus, whoever the original Jesus was, uh, stories began to be told about him. Maybe he made a good impression on some people. And, and as the stories were passed on, you know, the game of telephone, uh, the sharing of bread became the multiplying of bread, and, and praying for a sick people, person became the healing of a sick person. And before you know it, there's all these legends about Jesus doing these miracles and, and making these divine claims and dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And see, while there's not very many scholars who, who believe the conspiracy theory, there's a lot of scholars who believe the legendary theory. In fact, almost all the scholars who don't believe it's true believe some version of the legendary theory. So this one's got more plausibility. And while <coughs> you don't find many examples in religion of a conspiracy theory, you find quite a bit in politics, but not very many in religion, you do find many examples of legend in religion. In fact, it's kind of par for the course. Something happens and the story gets passed on and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it becomes part of the religious mythology. So it makes sense for someone to say, look, I think this stuff is just a legend. These people were sincere, but they're believing legends. 
They're willing to die for it because they thought it was true, but in fact it wasn't true. This is just your typical legendary stuff. Now I submit to you that when all is said and done, this theory, while initially more plausible than the first one, is actually, when all the evidence is in, not really much more plausible than the first one. There's at least six problems with it. So here we go. Problem number one. You've got to know that first century Palestine was not a conducive environment for, for, for legend making and legend spreading. Uh, not all cultures are equally open to legends. Many cultures are, but not all are. For example, our culture, modern secular America, is not a culture that's very open to legends. Where we, our, our worldview is just sort of against that sort of thing. We're too factual about stuff. It'd be hard to get a legend going uh, that would mythologize a person and attribute supernatural stuff to them. Most people in our culture just wouldn't buy it. It wouldn't get off the ground. First century Jewish culture was a whole lot like that. Because of their orthodox uh, monotheistic Judaism, they had built-in mechanisms that resisted the making of legends. They looked at all their pagan neighbors, all the Romans and the Greeks and others around them, and they saw that these people all believe legends. You know, in, in Greek mythology, and that then was translated into Roman mythology, of all sorts of stories about, you know, uh, the emperor becoming a god and gods coming down and these sorts of battles being waged, you know, the, all, all this mythological kind of stuff. And the Jews looked at that stuff and they said, that's all a bunch of bunk. And precisely because they were surrounded by it, they became very resistant to it. They didn't want to believe any of that stuff. Their, their word was the Old Testament. They believed the Old Testament. They weren't going to go by in legends. And so the, the, the legendary thesis has trouble getting off the ground at the very start because this is first century Palestine is not fertile soil for the birth, let alone the growth, of a legend. Second point. If first century Jews were going to evolve a legend, which I consider to be very improbable at the start, but if they were going to give birth to and evolve a legend, I submit to you it would not have looked like the Christian story. You need to know that legends uh, almost always arise out of a particular culture to meet certain social needs. That's why legends are birthed. And almost always the legend reconfirms fundamental aspects of the culture. It doesn't go against the culture. In fact, one theory about legends is that they're usually birthed precisely when people are feeling nervous about certain fundamental beliefs that, that the culture has, and the legend or the myth is, is uh, created precisely to reaffirm cultural beliefs. So when you find a story that goes against the culture in fundamental respects, that's one indication that it's likely that you're not dealing with a legend. If first century Jews were going to give birth to a legend, it would not have uh, been something that included a crucified and cursed Messiah, as I said last week. Uh, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, but they weren't expecting a Messiah who would die on a cursed cross. The Jews regarded dying a, 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 on the, on, on a, through crucifixion as a, a, as a symbol of being cursed by God. That comes out of Leviticus. Cursed is any man who hangs on the tree. And so the idea that the Messiah would be cursed is just as contradictory to the first century Jewish mindset as you could get. It just it wouldn't ring. It's not the kind of thing that a legend would ever come up with. The Jews were expecting a Messiah, but not a Messiah who made divine claims for himself and spoke with divine authority. They weren't expecting a Messiah who was God. But Jesus comes along according to the Christian story, and he says, among many, many other things, 
I've come. This is John 5, 23. I've come that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Who does this guy think he is? Honor the Son, even as you honor the Father. You're saying we should worship you. And that's pretty much what they did. But you see, that's, that, is, that idea is revolting at a fundamental level to Jews in the first century. As is the fact that the early Christians worshiped Jesus. And that's the third area. Jesus in the Gospels is worshipped. He's adored as being God incarnate, I think, because he is. But nothing could be more repulsive to a first century Jew than that idea. Legends are usually birthed and evolved to reinforce cultural ideas, but this idea that Jesus is to be worshipped as God on earth, that is, that's absolutely against the culture. Uh, legends almost always make heroes out of their founders. That's what legends, that's one of the things legends do. They make heroes out of the founders. But the early disciples, all, you read the Gospels, and they're all not just dull, they're extraordinarily dull. They don't get it. Fundamental things. Jesus tells them, turn the other cheek, love your enemies. They go into a town. The town rejects them. John and his brothers say, Lord, call down fire from heaven, and let's incinerate this town. Eh, you're not quite getting the point. Uh, Better to serve than to be served. The first shall be last, and so on and so on. Jesus teaches them, and three verses later, they're arguing about who's going to sit next to Jesus when they get to heaven. I get to be in the privileged chair. No, I get to be in the privileged chair. Then they get their mother involved. Mom, he, he wants to sit by the privileged chair. They're, they're, they're rather, forgive me, you guys, if you're listening in on this conversation, but uh, uh, they're, they're kind of blockheads. Um, they look very human. But see, that's just the kind of things that you don't find in legends. In legends, everything is bit larger than life. You read the legends of the, of the apostles in the 3rd and 4th century uh, gospels that are legendary, and they're all supermen. That's when they start getting these little halos, and they, they paint them a little larger than life, and they never doubt, and they never question, and they understand everything, and they're all wise and all that kind of stuff. But the gospels just sound very realistic. Uh, Jesus' own family, according to Mark and according to John, Jesus' own family don't believe him. Now think about this. It says in Mark and it says in John that they went out to get Jesus because they thought he was beside himself. You see, now, that's, that's an interesting thing. It raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? How could Mary, the mother of Jesus, think that he was crazy? Didn't she get this, you know, didn't, didn't Gabriel show up to her and say, Behold, your son shall be conceived? Didn't she, wasn't she a virgin when she conceived? I mean, uh, how could she be doubting this now? And James' own brother, having seen his, his you know, or Jesus' own brother James, having seen Jesus, how could he possibly doubt that he was the Son of God? And yet the Gospels tell us that they, 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 they saw that he, the way he was talking, he was going to get himself killed, which he did. And so they went out to get him, and they thought he was, he was kind of loopy. He'd gone crazy. Now, see, I think this is actually quite realistic if you think about it, but it's not obviously so. Mary, that, that, that talk that Gabriel had with her, that was 30 years earlier, 30 years. A lot can happen in 30 years. And now this mother loves her son, and she's seeing that her son is saying stuff that she never banked on. The angel never said, yeah, your son's going to get killed, and he's going to make divine claims for himself and really put him in the position of Yahweh. She's a, Jew, she's a Jewish mother, and, and uh, here her son is claiming to be divine, and she's seeing that he's going to get killed. She wants to go out and rescue him. I can see that happening. And James, James is no problem for me to figure out. You try growing up with the Son of God and see how easy it is for you to believe in him. You talk about sibling rivalry. I grew up with a brother that everyone thought was the son of God when it came to football anyways, and that wasn't easy. I, you know, sibling live rivalry. It's like, ah, 
Uh, James, uh, I, I can really see that he'd have trouble with this and probably thought, it, he, he probably liked the fact that people were thinking that Jesus was crazy because finally he's, he's on an even playing field. So they go out to get him. But see, that is exactly the kind of thing that a legend would never have. Legends never raise questions they don't themselves answer. In fact, legends are there to answer questions, to reinforce fundamental cultural assumptions, and that's exactly what the Gospels do not do. You find in the Gospels that women play an incredible role. By first century Jewish standards, the role of women is absolutely breathtaking. Jesus' treatment of women is absolutely bre breathtaking. You've got to understand that first century Jewish culture was extremely sexist, really sexist. A woman couldn't testify in court unless a man corroborated her testimony because the fundamental assumption was that women were liars. Uh, th th it was just like that. But here Jesus comes, and he surrounds himself with women, uh, some women of ill repute. Uh, he's hanging out with them. This isn't what a good rabbi is supposed to do, let alone the one who's supposed to be the Messiah. He's just not going according to their uh, prototype. And then, as we'll see next week, when, when, when Jesus is buried, who shows up to take care of the body? It's women. And where are the guys? They're hiding. They're scared. They're biting their nails. No Jewish male in the first century would admit that. <laughs> You see, and the fact that it's in this story has got to be explained because it's males who are writing the story. If this was a legend, that's exactly the kind of thing that would have been left out. It's amazing to me that they, that they included that, even though I think they were telling the truth, because they're Jewish males. You note that Paul, in his account of the resurrection, he doesn't mention any women. And, and that's typical for first century Jews, because in his mind, th th their, their word doesn't matter anyways. You see, but they, it's in the Gospels. And the fact that it's there, I think, testifies to its historicity. This is a Messiah who attracts tax collectors and prostitutes and other quote-unquote lowlifes. This isn't what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to court and win the approval of the religious authorities. This Messiah ticks the religious authorities off. And who does he attract? Tax collectors and prostitutes, the non-religious, the irreligious, the anti-religious. That is absolutely not what a Jewish Messiah is supposed to do. It's running countercultural to everything that the Jews believed. And finally, this is a Messiah who breaks all the rules. The, the, almost every rule they had in the first century, Jesus found a way to break. I love this guy. Uh, you know, he touches lepers. Uh, by, by law, they were considered un unclean. He, uh, he, uh, he, he talks highly of, of uh, Gentiles. Even the, a Roman centurion. Greater faith have I never found than this guy. He's a Roman centurion. That means he's a Roman military leader. That means that Jews despise him because he's part of the regime that's suppressing them. This isn't what's supposed to come out of a Messiah's mouth. But there it is in the Gospel accounts. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that would be produced by a legend. So, First century Judaism wasn't conducive for a legend in the first place, but it's certainly not conducive uh, uh, for a legend of this sort. Everything about this message sounds anti-legend. Third, and this is probably the strongest argument, there's simply not enough time in the birth of the early church for legendary development. Legends typically take time to evolve. Stories have got to be passed on and told and retold, but you don't have time for that in the first century. You know, when I was uh, uh, first at the University of Minnesota, I, was, I already had a shaky faith. I became a Christian my senior year in high school, but it wasn't based on anything very solid. I go to the U of M, and this happens way too much. But I, like many other kids, started taking classes in, in you know, biology and, 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 and New Testament as literature and philosophy. And my faith was really starting to get shaky. And I could not 
One of the reasons why I'm passionate about apologetics is I could not find an intelligent Christian for my life. It seemed like all the smart people rejected it or were atheists or whatever. And I ended up uh, uh, rejecting it for about a year myself. But I'm sitting in this class on New Testament as literature, and, and there's this professor up there, and he's just carving up the New Testament as being legendary and mythological and non-historical and all this sort of stuff. And I remember a kid asked uh, a question, and he said, look it, the New Testament says that Jesus was God. John 1, 1, John 1, 18, John 20, 28, and he quoted some verses. And you're trying to tell us that a Jewish carpenter became, by a legendary process, became viewed as God? I find that impossible. It was actually a very good point he was making. Well, the professor kind of giggled. He's like, oh, you students are so naive. He says, well, you know what? Buddha, uh, the great Gautama Buddha, he was, he was an atheist. And that's true. Historically, we know that Buddha didn't believe in God. And yet, the professor said, we find that some of his followers worshipped him as God. Now, I figure that if an atheist could evolve to being God by followers, by his followers, then it's not too surprising, is it, that Jesus, being a theist, believing in God, that some of his followers got a little carried away and began to worship him as God. And I remember sitting in my chair and my faith was just oozing out the door. I'm listening. It's like, oh, I guess my hope is in vain. I can't believe this stuff. Now, what I didn't know then, but what I do know now is this. There's a world of difference between Buddha and Jesus. Uh, for, for one thing, the environments are totally different. With Jesus, we're dealing with a first century Jewish culture that resists legends in the first place, certainly legends about a man being God. With Buddha, we're dealing with a pagan culture, which is used to divinizing people. That happens all the time. But the more significant point is this. It took five centuries, I later learned, 500 years for legends about Buddha to evolve to the point where some of his followers, not most, but one branch of Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, began to revere him as a god, not god of the universe, not god with a capital G, but just one of the, the, the divine beings whom they would pray to and revere to do intercession for them. With Jesus, you don't have five centuries. With Jesus, you don't have five decades. With Jesus, it's arguable that you don't even have five years for this legend to get off the ground. And you're not dealing with a pagan culture that's used to divinizing people. You're dealing with a monotheistic Jewish culture, which isn't open to legends in the first place. But if it was open to legends, this would be the last legend on earth any Jew would ever believe. The situation's totally different. Uh, you're comparing apples and oranges. Oranges. We know that Paul wrote. What did I say? Orangutans, aardvarks, whatever. It doesn't work. Look, at uh, Paul wrote his epistle, first epistles in 49 AD. That's 16 years after uh, Christ lived. Already in Paul. See, you don't ever find this slowly evolving thing. Paul has got, in his letters, a thoroughly divine Jesus. He calls him God. He worships him as divine. He, he gives him divine attributes. You don't have the slow evolution uh, of things. So in 49, you have Paul giving a fully divine Jesus, and it's really clear from Paul's letters that he's not announcing this as a new belief. He's passing on creedal, traditional material. This goes back way before Paul, and Paul's writing in 16 AD, AD which means you don't have a lot of time for legendary development. The Gospels also are early. Um, 
I argued last week that Luke should be dated before 62 AD. The other Gospels also give us evidence of, of being rather early. For example, Mark chapter 15, verse 21 says this. Uh, talking about the account of Jesus carrying his cross, and he couldn't carry it any longer. And so it says, They compelled a passerby, someone who's just standing around, who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Woohoo! Great verse, huh? Now, you, you're probably thinking that's probably the most boring verse I've ever read. But historically, it's extremely significant. Because note, note this, follow this. Mark is explaining who Simon of Cyrene is by appealing to Alexander and Rufus. Now, who's Alexander and Rufus? We don't know. But Mark's audience clearly did. And, Mar and, and who they were was the, the sons of the guy who carried the cross. And Mark assumes that his audience knows who Alexander and Rufus is. That's why he doesn't have to, have to explain who they are. And that's why he can use Alexander and Rufus as the means of explaining who Simon of Cyrene is. His whole point presupposes that Alexander and Rufus are well known by his audience, which means he's writing at a time when Alexander and Rufus are still around. They're household names, which means he's writing in the generation right after the time when Simon of Cyrene carried the cross. It also means that Simon of Cyrene must have somehow got saved by carrying the cross of Jesus, and I find that to be a beautiful thing. But he's writing in the 40s, some scholars argue, maybe in the 50s, at the latest, uh, the 60s. But that is, by historically standards, very close to the event. You don't have time for legendary development. Which leads to my fourth point. How could a legend develop while there's eyewitnesses, whether friendly or hostile, who are still around? See, this isn't a story that's told long, long ago and far, far away, once upon a time. This is a story that's told about a guy who lived in Palestine. They're, they're telling the story to Palestinians, and it's about something that was very recent. When, Pilate, when Pontius Pilate was the governor, when, when Herod was governor, when Caiaphas was the high priest, when Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. These people were around when the stuff they're talking about happened. How can a legend develop right under your eyes, right under your noses, or whatever metaphor you want to use, when you yourself were there? There's a lot of people who wanted to bury Christianity. And it would have been the easiest thing in the world to say, wait a minute, we knew Jesus. He didn't do that. You're getting carried away. You're starting to exaggerate the story. But it's really interesting. But with all the criticisms we have against Christianity uh, uh, in the ancient world, and there's a lot of them, People didn't like Christianity. It was considered a pernicious uh, cult. But uh, for all the objections people raise against Christianity, no one, not one time, suggests that it was a legend. Which would have been the most obvious thing to say if there was any truth to it at all. And there would have been eyewitnesses around to say that this was, in fact, a legend. How do you even account for a legend developing among those who were friendly towards it? Among James, among Peter, among Andrew... You know, James, let's go to James again, the brother of Jesus. Uh, how are we to believe that a legend about his brother evolved while he's still around? You know, his brother was a carpenter, and gradually he, he, you know, they start telling stories about him multiplying loaves and fishes and walking on water and healing the sick and all that sort of stuff, and then they start worshiping his God. Isn't James going to say anything? Look at, I, when, when I was uh, in high school, and my brother was the superstar of all sports, and I was not a superstar of all sports, and there's that sibling rivalry going on, and uh, all of that. One day, my brother 
uh, scored five touchdowns in one game. He was good. He was really fast. In the paper, in the front page of the sports section, it said, this is the captain that had his picture. It says, can anyone stop Chris Boyd? <laughs> and he came and showed me that paper. And see, I, I just wanted to go in, into some hole and die. You know, I was like, kill me now. Uh, it's really hard living in the shadows of that. So I go to school, and I'm walking down the halls, and there's this pack of girls, one of whom I was kind of interested in was really cute. And, and they're all talking with each other. And as I'm walking past them, the cute girl says, hey, you guys, did you hear that Chris scored six touchdowns last night? I stopped, and I said, it was only five. <laughs> now, granted, that's pretty impressive, you know, but let's not get carried away. No one's, my point is that no one would stop the legend faster than James. You just think what it was like growing up as James. Who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? Well, it wasn't Jesus, so it must have been James. No, Jesus, he never does anything wrong, does he? Well, no, he is the son of God. Why can't you just be like your brother? Oh, you're, you're human. No, I, you know, that would be miserable. You know, it's one thing to say, and it's, People make a lot of this. It's true that in our own memories, you know, stories can get expanded and, and altered. And, you know, you caught a little minnow and, and, you know, a year later, it's a whale. That, that happens. And you sincerely believe it. But there's a limit. There's a limit to that. And I, see, at some point, I think the legendary theory bleeds into the conspiracy theory. These guys would have to, granted, maybe in their own mind, they sincerely, you know, revise their memories of Jesus. But you're talking about going from a Jewish carpenter to the God of the universe in the span of a couple of years. That, that doesn't happen without somebody noticing it. Peter or John or James or somebody saying, hey, you guys, I, I think we're kind of exaggerating here a little bit, don't you think? And if they wouldn't have done it, you've got plenty of hostile witnesses who would have done it. I find at this point the theory to be altogether implausible. Fifth point. The Gospels claim to write history, and they read like sober history. They do not read like legend. C.S. Lewis said this. He was an Oxford scholar, an expert on legend and mythology. And he said in one, in one of his essays, I've spent my entire life studying legends, and if there's one thing the Gospels aren't, it's legend. They just don't read like legends. Spend, spend a couple weeks reading legends and mythology, and then go to the Gospels, and you'll see that you're dealing with an entirely different world. They write like his history, uh, they claim to write history, and there's a standard rule of historical methodology that says this. When you're dealing with an ancient document that claims to write history and reads like history, treat it like history. In fact, the standard principle of historical methodology is this. If a historian thinks that an ancient document that claims to write history and reads like history is not reporting history, then the burden of proof is on the historian to prove them wrong. It's not on the document to prove itself right. And see, if you didn't have that assumption, our history books would be much thinner because more often than not, we can't cross-verify the documents that we're reading. We trust that people who claim to write history are, are getting it mostly right. You see? Now, some reason, when we come to the Gospels, all of a sudden the gloves are off and we only believe what we can prove. And that, I suggest to you, is simply prejudicial. The Gospels claim to write history. Let's go to Luke again. First few verses of the book of Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. This is not long, long ago and far, far away. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. He claims to be in touch with eyewitnesses. This is not how legends are written. This is how history is written. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He's, he's not passing on legends. He investigated this stuff. He looked, he, he, he checked it all out. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. He intends to communicate historical truth to convince Theophilus this is all true. Why think? What evidence is there that he's not telling us the truth? Or what evidence is there that, he's, he's, he, that he didn't investigate it carefully? That, in fact, uh, he's passing on legends. There's no evidence whatsoever. He claims to write history. He reads like history. We ought to treat him as history and uh, uh, accept what he has to say unless there's good evidence that what he's saying is wrong. And for that, folks, I'm here to tell you that there just is not that, that evidence isn't available. Look at what 1 John says. 1 John chapter 1. John says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, which we have touched with our, 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 with our hands, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus Christ. The life appeared, and we've seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. He has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Do you get the point? He, he's saying, look, you guys, I've seen this three times in the span of three verses. We've seen this. We're not making this up. We've heard this. We're not making this up. We've touched him. We're not making this up. See, at this point, you've got, you, here's your decision. Either John's telling us the truth or he's lying. You can't say he was passing on a legend. If he's passing on a legend, he couldn't claim this. Legends are always about what happened long, long ago, far, far away, at some distant place, in some distant land, at some distant time, and no one's around who, who, now who, who, who was there when it happened. That's how legends are, almost always. But this is about a guy who's saying, look at it, I'm going to tell you something that I've seen, that I've heard, that I've touched. I've really, I, I, I really seen it. I've really heard. I've really touched him, and I'm going to pass this on that you may have fellowship with him. And either I'm telling you the truth or I'm lying. The legendary theory bleeds into the conspiracy theory. And as we saw last week, there's, the conspiracy theory has nothing going for it. Argument number six, or problem number six, is this. The Gospels give evidence of containing eyewitness testimony. If you treat the Gospels fairly as you would any other ancient document, they give you every reason to believe that, in fact, they're passing on eyewitness testimony. Not necessarily that they're written by eyewitnesses. Luke tells us he's not an eyewitness. It's probable that Mark's not an eyewitness either, although the, the uh, early church tradition, which I think is very reliable, tells us that Mark dictated uh, Peter's gospel in Rome. So Peter passed down the gospel. Maybe Peter couldn't write. That wasn't that rare in those days, and he was a fisherman. So Mark took notes, and the gospel was attributed to Mark. But in any case, the material in these gospels rings with eyewitness testimony. For example, one characteristic of eyewitness testimony is that it intends to include a lot of superfluous or irrelevant detail. When a person is recounting something, they'll include a lot of stuff that really isn't germane to the point. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, some people include a real lot of detail. Uh, you know, but but that, that's normal for eyewitnesses. You find that all over the place in the Gospels. Just observations about stuff that really don't contribute to anything. For example, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but... Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us several times that Jesus came to a crowd, or the crowd came to Jesus. And, and he says, Jesus looked around him and then said, he looked around him. And the impression you get is that Jesus would, would sort of stare down his audience before he'd talk. 
I should try that sometime. Just get up here. And... See, that's just an interesting little detail. I can imagine Peter, as he's telling the story to Mark, as maybe he's told it a number of times, but that's not the kind of thing that he would remember. And Jesus used to stare down the crowd, and then, and then, then he'd give a talk. Those little kind of details are, 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 are impressive. Now, here's the thing. The gospel's full of that. There was a, uh, probably one of the most liberal seminaries on the planet in the last hundred years has been Tübingen Seminary in Germany. There's all sorts of, of liberal, radical stuff comes out of Tübingen. And they kind of pride themselves on that. They invited, I think it was in the 60s, a, the, a scholar, one of the f- foremost Homer scholars in the world, arguably the, the, the greatest scholar in classic literature in the world, maybe in history. His name was Wolfgang Schadenwald. And they invited him to come and give a, an address to the faculty at Tübingen uh, on his assessment of the historical reliability of the Gospels. I have a copy of the speech that he gave. In the, and I don't know if Wolfgang Schadenwald was a Christian or not, but he said some amazing things in this address. I don't think it's quite what the Tübingen faculty were expecting. He said this, We cannot be other than captivated by the experiential vividness, the vividness that comes from experience, with which we are confronted in the Gospels. Now listen to this. This is the expert of experts on classic literature. I know of no other area of history, writing, biography, or poetry where I encounter so great a wealth of material, experiential vividness is what he's talking about, in such a small space. That is an incredible statement. What he's saying, in essence, is this. If ever you have reasons for thinking you're dealing with eyewitness testimony, you have it in the Gospels. It's packed full of it. This guy who spent his life studying this stuff says, I've never seen such a great amount of vivid detail in such a small space uh, uh, of, of, uh, of writing. The Gospels claim to write history. They read like history, and they give us all reasons to believe that, in fact, they are history. One other area, and I could do it. We could go on for this for a year. Paul, Eddie, and I, just a little ad- advertisement here, uh, are just finishing up a book called The Jesus Legend. It's all about the legendary theory. And um, uh, it, it's, it was supposed to be about a 100-page little thing. It's now 524 pages. Uh, so it, it, we're, we're two years over date. Uh, and there's just a lot of material here. But, but one of the things you find is this. Critics are always accusing the Gospels of being in, in error. Uh, with regard to archaeology and and the facts of the first century. But over and over and over again, what you find is that eventually the Gospels vindicate themselves. Uh, Things line up. For example, it was argued, standard argument uh, years ago, that Luke's account of the census being taken, which got Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem because they had to go back to the birthplace to take a census, it was argued that that was all fabricated because we had no archaeological evidence that, uh, that that's the way they took censuses in the first century. None. Now, if you're treating the Gospels fairly, that shouldn't bother you because a document should be considered true unless it's proven false, and there's no, argu- no evidence that it was false either. But see, that's where the burden of proof always seems to shift when you're turning to the Bible. Well, and, and so you've got to ask this question. <laughs> if Luke was wrong about this, wouldn't he have to be profoundly stupid? Because... If he's making this up and it sounds ridiculous to us, what would it sound like to his original audience? These are people who took censuses the right way, and now Luke's going to make up about uh, what looks like a ludicrous way of taking a census, and he expects his audience to believe it? 
I, I, I find that uh, that argument alone should convince us that Luke couldn't have just made it up. But on top of that, we now have a lot of records, of the, that, a lot of proof that, in fact, that's how they took censuses back then. Uh, for a period of time just prior to the first century and going to about the middle of the first century, this is how they did it. People went to their birthplace and, uh, and registered. It used to be argued that Jesus of Nazareth, that phrase, Jesus of Nazareth, that that was made up. And the reason was because we had no archaeological evidence of a town named Nazareth. We had several registrars of towns in Palestine, and Nazareth wasn't, wasn't on it. So critics said, oh, they must have just made that up. Now again, you've got to wonder just how stupid are we supposed to suppose the gospel authors are? Because they're talking to Palestinians. You can't go making up a town in Palestine when you're talking to Palestinians. It'd be like me trying to sell you a story of Oli, the Savior, who was birthed here in Minnesota. Yeah, he came from, uh, he came from Oliville. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> Oli the Messiah, especially since you guys are Christians and, and you'd, you'd be opposed to what I'm saying, so you'd want to disprove me. But I'm saying, hey, you know, this is Oli from Oliville. Yes, and he's here to save the world. And you, someone might have the brains to ask, well, exactly where is Oliville? <laughs> and I've lived in Minnesota all my life, don't you know, and I don't know any Oliville. Well, it's just uh, you know, south, north of Bemidji and south of Mankato, somewhere in there. I don't know. <laughs> okay, see, now what we found, we have six references that we found in the last uh, 100 years, really, uh, that refer to Nazareth. It was a very, very small, insignificant town, which didn't make it on the official Roman registrars because it was so small. Uh, they estimate that maybe 30 people live there. That's why Andrew says in the book of John, can anything, you know, you expect the Messiah to come out of Nazareth? Wouldn't it be some great town like, you know, Galilee or you know, Sepophorus or something? But uh, no, it comes out of, he comes out of Nazareth. But over and over and over again, the Gospels vindicate themselves. You have all the reasons to believe they're passing on eyewitness testimony. They read like history. They claim to write history. You don't have nearly enough time for myth-making. If there was a legend, it would be, be easily falsifiable by the hostile eyewitnesses, and the, uh, and the original eyewitnesses never would have let it, let it happen. But on top of all that, you've just got the wrong culture in the first place because there's few cultures that would be less conducive for a legend to be birthed, especially a legend that looks like this, than first-century Judaism. So the question comes down to, once again, this. What are you going to wager your life on? See, I'm up here talking to you, and I have decided to leverage, wager my whole life on this being true. I, I, and have I proven it? I haven't really proven it, not with any kind of mathematical certainty, but you can't prove this kind of stuff with mathematical certainty. I have to have a faith that goes beyond the evidence. To put my trust in Jesus Christ and to commit to live for him, I have to go beyond the evidence. I'll grant you that. But see, what I want you to see is that whatever you believe, you have to go beyond the evidence. And as you're sitting there in that chair, if your belief is that he is not Lord, that Luke was not telling the truth, well, you can't prove that either. And you're wagering your whole life, and if I'm right, the next life on me being wrong. What's the more reasonable thing to believe? Whatever you believe about God or about Jesus or getting on airplanes, you've got to go beyond the evidence. The question is, is, are you going against the evidence? And see, I believe that my faith is firmly grounded in the evidence. I think it's a very reasonable, the only reasonable conclusion to draw, given all the evidence. Whereas to walk away from this, well, you better hope that the conspiracy theory and the, or the legendary theory turn out to be true. 
But I think I've just shown you that that is a very shaky, shaky thing to base this life and the next life on. Now, to have faith in Jesus Christ is not to hold a historical hypothesis. Okay, I think I believe that it, that, that was really true. It starts with that. But what God wants is for you now to make a life commitment on the basis of what you believe about this material. What he's looking for is not people who hold a particular historical theory, but people who have a particular heart. A heart that says, I will not live for myself anymore. I want to live for you. He wants you to experience his love, his transforming grace, and he wants to begin to refine your life so that you begin to look like the, what, what the Bible calls the bride of Christ. And I want to give everybody here this morning who does not have a saving relationship with Christ a chance to begin that process. This is not a magical prayer. There is no magic. But it's a commitment. You're saying, I'm ready now to commit my life to live for him. And if you're here and don't have a saving relationship with Christ, and if you're saying, well, I'm not sure if I do or not, then, then chances are you don't. So I, I want to give you the chance to, to make sure of that. Uh, I, I, I want to give you that chance right now. Would everyone close your eyes? And those who are in a relationship with Christ, just begin to pray. And I want to ask you, oh, thank you. I want to ask you this question. Are you ready here to commit your life to him? And if you are, just raise your hand. And we're just, we're just going to pray for you. Just uh, anybody here in the back, a number of people. Up here, wonderful. And you're saying, okay, you know what? I, I, maybe you've never seen it this way before. Maybe you did once and you backed out on it. Up here, back there, just raise your hand. Wonderful over there, I see your hand. Wonderful. Others? Anyone else? Okay, I see that hand. There's about 10 people here who have raised their hands. And you're just saying, okay, I, I'm going to live for him now. It requires dying to yourself committing your life to him doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. doesn't mean you know, all your problems are going to be solved. It just means I'm going to be committed to walking with him. Anybody else? Up here. I see that. Wonderful. Anybody else? Okay. I, I don't know if I got all the hands. Sometimes it's hard to see, but it doesn't matter because this is about you and God. It's not about me. Back there, I see that hand. This is a commitment you want to make. Now, this is not a fire insurance prayer. Nothing magic about this. It's more like getting married where you're t giving a vow. Don't pray this unless you're willing to make this vow because the Bible takes vows very seriously. But if you are ready to do this, pray this from your heart, and we'll all join you in this prayer. So say it out loud. Heavenly Father, I thank you for loving me even though I don't deserve it. And I thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die for me. I believe that he is the Savior and the Lord of the world. And I now make him the Savior and Lord of my life. Lord Jesus, I surrender my life over to you. And I ask you to forgive me and come and live in me and help me live for you the rest of my life, starting right now. Amen.